For context, I'll read from verses 29 to 34, and the sermon will be on 31 to 34 particularly. The next day he saw Jesus coming to him. And he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This, verse 30, is he on behalf of whom I said, After me comes a man who has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. And I did not recognize him, verse 31, but so he might be manifested to Israel. I came baptizing in water. John testified, saying, I have seen the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and he remained upon him. Verse 33, and I did not recognize him, but he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, he upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. Let's pray. Lord, we have just sung that we want you to speak and renew our minds until your church is built. So God, please take your word, apply it into not only our minds, but our lives such that we live out your words with faithfulness until your son comes. For your glory and your glory alone, we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Some of you might be wondering if I went to art school, for I've been showing a series of paintings over the last three or four weeks. There is a method to my madness. It's a technique that's called mnemonics, spelt with an M, M-N. Mnemonics is a visual imagery bank that is stored in your mind so that you can recall later with clarity. And so not only are we journeying through the book of John auditory-wise, we're doing it visually-wise. And so one of the questions that you may ask is, how many paintings and for how long? <laughs> and the answer is, stay tuned. We will go through seven paintings. And those seven images will capture the core doctrinal truths that are found in the book of John, such that at a later date, when you see all seven, you can go back in your memory paradigm or palace and quickly recall the book of John in order. And so the first image that I showed to you a number of weeks ago may come up on the screen. It might not. <laughs> if it doesn't, I'll simply explain it to you. Let me pause. There we go. So we had four weeks ago this image of Martin Luther, and you'll recall one hand, left hand on the Bible, right hand pointing to the cross. One of our younger adults in the song we just sang, I, I saw a text come from one of our elders and he said, well, dad, Jesus is still on the cross and that image that was just shown. How observant, how wise that was for him to catch that. Jesus behind me is not represented on the cross. 
I've made that point numerous times in case you were absent. Uh, This is an image, though, of Luther pointing to the cross and a group of people either staring at the cross or looking away from the cross. Perhaps that's no different than today. Behind me is a cross that is vacant of Christ, which means he is crucified but rose again. The next image last week I showed to you was this. And you recall, for those that were here, that in this image we see the Lamb of God surrounded by five groups of people. Not sure how that was a response, but... Five groups of people and angels are around catching the blood of Christ. You can see the the breast of the lamb that has been pierced. And if you could read below it, it's tough to see in gold right below it. It says, behold, the lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. The disciples are represented in the bottom The bottom middle is actually supposed to be the fountain of youth. And then you see on the bottom right, some that have a book that's open, which is the Bible, and they're not looking to the lamb. They're looking into the book. And on the other side, you see others with the book, but their eyes are not on the book. They're on the lamb. And so what do we take from this image? The reason that we study and pour over God's word is to point to the Lamb of God. It's the fulfillment of all that came before and where we will revel around the throne for the glory of God, magnifying, worshiping the Lamb who is worthy to be slain. For he took away, past tense, sins, for believers. He enabled, he provided the means for reconciliation or atoning before a holy and just God. Up until this, you remember I said there was a Passover feast that was celebrated annually, blood on the doorposts, blood on the lentil, but it happened again and again. And the priest in the temple shed the blood of a lamb, not once, but twice daily to atone for the sins. But when Christ came, It was a once-for-all sacrifice. So how many images? Seven. For how long? To be determined. It's taken us a little while, as you might have noticed, even to get through John 1. I do not apologize for that. For we are locking in our minds the rich truths of God's word. When we get to John 2, which will be in three weeks, Lord willing, we will move at about three services per chapter until we get to Christmas morning, which will be at John 3.16. And to reinforce that night at 5 p.m., we'll be doing a Christmas Eve Eve service, which this morning I learned that we're also going to have the children involved. So stay tuned. More to come on this. So we are excited for a candlelight Christmas Eve Eve service. We will that night go back to John 1.14, which is the Lamb of God that became incarnate, took on flesh, not for a season, but permanently for our sins. For God had to be man to die in our place. 
Last week, I wasn't feeling 100% mentally, physically, and I missed an entire page in a bit of my notes. So instead of reinventing the wheel, I stole it for this morning. And here is what I meant to say to you last week, but boy, am I glad I figured it out afterwards. John 1, 21 to 25. Jeremy, two weeks ago, talked about the religious leaders, the Sanhedrin, and they were sending in a delegation asking John the Baptist, do you remember the questions? Who, what? Basically, it's authority. If you're not Elijah, if you're not the Christ, if you're not the prophet, then by what authority are you baptizing people? To which... He said, the I am nots. I am not, I am not, I am not. So the question I forgot to ask you last week, but I will reinforce in your minds this morning is, why? Why were they seeking the Messiah? That's the question. Here's the answer. They were hoping, they were wanting, and they were expecting a prophet or a king, but not a lamb. Look down in your Bibles with me. John 1, verse 25. And they asked him, they said then, why are you baptizing if you're not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? And John answered them saying, verse 26, John 1, I baptize you in water, but among you stands one whom you do not know. It is he who comes after me, the thong whose sandal I am unworthy to untie. They wanted, they hoped for a conquering king that would come to liberate them from their oppression and tyranny or tyranny from the Romans. But what they needed was release from the tyranny of their sin. And it's exactly the same today. Many people look to a Messiah, look to a savior for their benefit, for their ease, but they missed it. Here comes Christ. They missed it. They did not understand how the king, the lion of Judah, would firstly need to be the sacrificial lamb of God before he would become the king and ascend to the throne. The lion of Judah, he would firstly need to be the sacrificial lamb of God. John Piper wrote this. Listen to his words. They're beautiful. The Lion of Judah came into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday like a king on the way to the throne. And he went out of Jerusalem on Good Friday like a lamb on the way to the slaughter. He drove out the robbers from the temple like a lion devouring its prey. And then at the end of the week, he gave his majestic neck to the knife and they slaughtered the Lion of Judah like a sacrificial lamb. That is who we come to celebrate communion in honor and commemoration this morning. The lion that became the lamb and the lamb that rose as the lion. The lion of Judah came as the lamb of God conquering sin, death, providing the means for reconciliation before a holy and just God. You remember last week we talked about that he came to take away the sin of the world and the context and the purpose behind that comment is so that we understand that it is not just for Jew, it's but for Jew and Gentile. Before we joyfully celebrate, commemorate communion, the Lamb of God, as believers, we need to revisit last week. Now, some of you might have wondered, 
In fact, one of our elders said, by, by the way, Chris, I think you forgot some verses last week. Now, it was not covered last week, but it was intentionally not covered last week. So you remember last week's sermon was John 1, 29 to 34. But if you went back and looked at your notes, I focused all of my attention on verse 29, verse 30, and verse 34. And I held back verses 31, 32, 33 for this morning. So here we go. Here's the big idea. I think it might be in your bulletins. Chip, give me a nod if it is. It's not. Great. Okay. So here's the big idea. So grab a pen, write it down. This is the big idea. It was perhaps supposed to be there. The spirit descended and remained on the sun. The spirit descended and remained on the sun. And the sun baptizes believers with the spirit who remains inside them. Let me reread it for you. Now, I promise in future weeks when they're long quotes like this, they will be in your bulletins. But let me do it for this week. The spirit descended and remained on the sun. Everybody looks happy so far. Good. And the son baptizes believers with the spirit and remains inside them. Are we good? Okay, I see a whole bunch of people nodding or just not writing. So we're going to say we're good either way. Okay. The sermon outline is broken down into four points. Chip, these are in your bulletin, right? Okay, there we go. The confusion, the baptism, the sign, and the sun. The verses associated are listed there. And the supporting scriptures are there. Good. Let's be confused before we're clarified. Okay? So the question that I wrestled with again and again and again, how in the world did John the Baptist not know the identity of Jesus Christ? Look to verse 31 and 33. 31 starts, I did not recognize him. 33 starts, I did not recognize him. Wait a second. How did John the Baptist not recognize Jesus Christ? Is that what the word of God means here? And the answer is no. The answer is no. Why? So if you look carefully to the present tense and past tense of the verses, I want you to look at verse 31 and 32 together with me. I did not recognize him, but so that he might be manifested to Israel, I came baptizing in water. And John testified, now he's going to go into past tense. I have seen the spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and he remained past tense upon him. And so scripture must be, as Duane often will say, interpreted with scripture. Well said. So when we look at the residual of the gospels, the other three, the synoptics, what we find is the baptism of Jesus Christ is covered not in one, not in two, not in three, but in all four gospels. And in the other three gospels, we pick up some amazing content that's missing in the book of John. And when you harmonize it together, you get a rich picture. 
And so what we pick up from the confusion is there was confusion before the Spirit came to descend upon him. That's the confusion. He knew who Jesus Christ was physically, but he did not know that he was the coming one, the anointed, the expected one who would come to take away the sin of the world. That's where the confusion was. But how do we know this is true? Look down at God's word again. Verse 31, I did not recognize him, but so that he might be manifested to Israel, I came baptizing in water. And John testified, I have seen the spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and he remained upon him. I did not recognize him, verse 33, but he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, he upon who you see the spirit descending and remaining, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. Now, if I'm confused, who do I want to clarify something? God is a good answer. Okay, so God himself speaks and says to John, by the way, when this happens, this is the one. And so what we have here is the baptism of Jesus Christ that has happened before this. And now John is recalling saying, oh, by the way, I was confused, but now I have clarity. For God said, when this happens, the spirit up until this point would descend predominantly as an anointing. It would be for a season. It would be for a purpose. It would be for an empowerment. But something is happening here. And God says to him, John the Baptist, by the way, when the spirit comes and doesn't descend for a season, but descends and remains, this is the one. That's the point. This level of confusion was witnessed by the apostle Peter. Remember Peter at Caesarea Philippi? When he's asked by Jesus the identity, what does he say? You are the Christ, the son of the living God, Matthew 16, 16. To which Jesus affirmed the confession and declares Peter blessed. Good news, right? What is the very next thing that happens? Just literally minutes after this confession, it was obvious that Peter did not comprehend what was meant for Jesus to be the Messiah. How do we know? Jesus tells his disciples that he was bound to go to Jerusalem to suffer and to die. And Peter replied, no, 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 this isn't going to happen, Jesus. So Peter was confused. John the Baptist was confused. We were confused. Here's the point. How do we get clarity from confusion? God's word. Up until this point, God was speaking to John the Baptist directly. Jesus spoke to Peter directly. How do we get clarity from our confusion today? In and through God's word alone. If you want to be made clear, open the book, read the book, study the book, apply the book. And rinse and repeat and rinse and repeat. That is the method to clarify confusion. John the Baptist was confused, but God provides clarity. Peter was confused, but Jesus provides clarity. We are confused. God's word provides clarity. 
The Spirit teaches and recalls to mind the precious things that have been stored up from the Word. John 14, 26. What's the implication of that? Let me pause to let you hear the importance of what I just said. The Spirit recalls to mind that which has been stored up. What's the implication? You have to have done the work first. You don't put this, remember, like in school when someone doesn't study and they put the book under their pillow. If you ever remember this one? And they're like, maybe if I sleep near it, maybe I'm just close enough to it that then when I take the test, guess what? Does not work. You need to study the book. The Spirit will recall to mind, yes, but you have to first do the work to store up the words so that it can be applied. Clarity comes from God's word. Not from anything else. Believers were once blind. All of us that were believers, we were once blind, but now we see. John 9, 25. We were once lost, but now we behold Christ. John the Baptist was unclear of the identity prior to when he baptized Jesus Christ. And what provided clarity? God. What was the sign? The Spirit descending and remaining. When did it occur? At the baptism. Go to verse 31 again. Look to the second half of it. Second point in your bulletin is the baptism. Verse 31b, 33b. I came, second half of it, baptizing in water. Skip down to verse 33 with me, the second half. But he who sent me to baptize in water set upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon. This is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. Now, two different types of baptism are occurring here. Heresy is misapplying God's word, misidentifying who Christ is. As I've said again and again and again, we either elevate who? The deity of Christ or the humanity of Christ, and we don't harmonize fully God, fully man. Sometimes there's nuances in the Christian faith that are misunderstanding God's word and misapplying. And an example of it comes from this particular verse, 33b. I came baptizing in water, but he who comes after is the one that will baptize in the Holy Spirit. Now, we are studying down in one of the modulars through the books of Acts, uh, the book of Acts. And there is a miscalculation that happens in the baptism of the Holy Spirit where we can look at anomalies in Scripture, one-time events, one-time empowerments for a season, for a time, and extrapolate that across the entire Bible as if this is a normal way that things occur. No. What normally happens throughout scripture is when someone is converted, they receive the spirit. Let me just be crystal clear. There's not a delay. There's not typically something that happens where, okay, you're now a believer and then you have a water baptism, which is a public proclamation of your faith in Jesus Christ before the assembly of the saints, such that people are standing beside you in one fellowship. And then you receive the Spirit. No, that's wrong. Typically what the Bible teaches from cover 
to cover in the New Testament particularly is once someone is converted, they receive the Spirit. With me? Okay, this is really important we get this point. The second blessing, as it's called, of the Spirit, which is I am now converted and then I receive a second blessing of the Spirit, I think is a potential miscalculation of God's word. I just want to be so clear on this. That, in other words, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, the spirit now dwells tabernacles in you. Before Jesus Christ came, died, sacrificed, rose again. Remember where God dwelt? Tabernacle, we covered this weeks ago. In the tent. In the Holy of Holies. He moved with his people. Pillar, fire, right? But God dwells in us now through his spirit. How did that get accomplished? Through the sacrificial death of the lamb, curtain torn top to bottom. And now the spirit resides in the life of a believer. So therefore, what is the difference between a water baptism and the spirit baptism? That's the question. Because if you look at verse 31 and 33, you can go, whoa, whoa, wait a second. There's two different types of baptisms occurring here. What is the difference of being, what's being described? Water baptism was meant to be an important proclamation of repentance. Remember what John would say? I came baptizing the baptism of repentance. And he keeps making really clear, I baptize in water. But... He who comes after me, he will be the one who baptizes with the Spirit. So water baptism is meant as an important public proclamation of the repentance of sins before a holy God and an identification of belief in God, a public association with other believers. Think of the Old Testament, sacrificial washing system, purification system. That's what baptism was like before Christ came. So you see here in Leviticus 13 to 15, other ritual washings, uncleanliness that comes to sinners in a sinful world. Exodus 19, 10 through 11, Israel's told to wash before they meet God at Sinai. Exodus 29, 4, Aaron and his sons are to be washed with water, consecrated as priests. Exodus 30, 17 to 21, occurred in obedience. And the command of God symbolized purification of sin. So also baptism. But in the Old Testament, the act of washing does not affect the cleansing. God does. Baptism of the Holy Spirit is not like this. Something is about to be afoot. The man that's coming after me, who he is not worthy to untie the sandals of. He isn't going to baptize with water. He's going to baptize with the Holy Spirit. And you remember when they wanted to keep Jesus and say, no, 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 stay with us, stay with us. And he says, it's better for me to go. For when I go, the Spirit will come and will tabernacle. This is a one-time event that happens at conversion. God saved us, not because of the works that, he, that we've done by righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing and the regeneration of the Holy Spirit, Titus 3.5. The washing was temporal. It was symbolic. 
but there's a true and greater washing coming. The Old Testament cleansing system John the Baptist was pointing to and teaching says, no, 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 all of that old system, there's a truer and a greater and a more permanent wash that's coming. And all of that system that happened before, this ritualistic system is going to be ripped apart and replaced with a permanency. Hebrews 9, 13 to 14, a regeneration of the Holy Spirit, all of which was symbolized by baptism. What do we say when we baptize people? I baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Jesus did not need to be baptized. For baptism had an implication that sinners were coming for a ritual cleansing from sin. And that's why John says, whoa, whoa, whoa. No, 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 no. Hey, you should be baptizing me, but you're asking me to baptize you? Matthew three fourteen, John tries to prevent Jesus and he says, I have need to be baptized by you and yet you come to me? Jesus was not baptized because of sins. Rather, Jesus was baptized because of a sign of his dedication, his wholehearted obedience to the Father. And so too are we to follow his example. His own baptism is transformed in our experience because he is more than just a model. And we don't simply get baptized today because he did. We're baptized into him. And he baptizes us with the Holy Spirit. Though like John the Baptist, we may at first be perplexed as why Jesus was baptized. But now we understand that Jesus' baptism is a crucial part of the saving work in the world always to be remembered, always to be remembered. The baptism of Jesus by John the Baptist is covered in Matthew 3, 16. Matthew 16, 16. Matthew 16, 22. Mark 1, 10. Luke 3, 22. And John 1, 31. Is it important? It's extremely important. The other three gospels add something that John doesn't have. Do you remember what happens? Jesus gets baptized. The spirit descends like a dove or in the bodily form like a dove. It's not a dove, just to clarify that, (laughs) okay? But he comes down like a dove. And God the Father says, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. So who do we have at the baptism of Jesus? The Father, the Son, and the Spirit. The Trinity is on full display. And all four Gospels are saying critical event in the time is happening. Jesus' public ministry is just about to happen. And the sign that happens that says, here he is, is the baptism of Jesus. And the voice of God speaks saying, this is him. This is him. And John speaks and said, here's the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. You are my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. This is hugely important. So in the New Testament across Christian tradition, baptism signals three realities. If you take notes, this is 
what I think is an important point. In the New Testament, across Christian tradition, baptism signals three realities. Here they are. An identification with Christ in his life, in his death, and in his resurrection. So it's an identification with Christ. Life, death, resurrection. Two, purification from sin and its effects. Not by the washing but by the means of Christ. So purification of sin. And third, an incorporation into the body of Christ, the church. So we have an identification with Christ, a purification from sin, and an incorporation into the body of Christ, which is the church. So prior to the death and the resurrection of Jesus, people were anointed, people were indwelt. Not indwelt, excuse me anointed, but they were not indwelt universally for believers in Christ. But in some instances, the Spirit did come and remain. First Samuel sixteen thirty three. Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. But it's not precedent-setting. What was way more normal would have been what followed in other circumstances the empowerment did not last first samuel 16:14 here's the point you today as a believer in jesus christ have the spirit indwelling with you not coming and going not for a season not for an empowerment but because he has been the sacrificial lamb And when he died, he rose, he ascended, he sent the spirit to dwell into the life of all believers. And the spirit is the sign that denotes the local church. See the importance of that. So in a church of this size or all churches, there may be believers, but there also might not be believers. The church, small c, are those that are universally brought together by fellowship through Christ, through his death, through belief in Christ, and are united and have one spirit. God's word teaches us. To be a Christian, to have the spirit of God, Romans 8, 9. You are not in the flesh of the spirit, is in fact, if the spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. So no one is a Christian if he does not have the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 5, 18, Paul addresses the Christians and he says, you have the Holy Spirit. We know that by the way, chapter one, we were sealed with the promised spirit, the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. Ephesians 1, 13 to 14. And so receiving the spirit occurs at conversion, not a second blessing. Let me read to you something that I think that I think you want to catch at this point that's important. Pentecostalism is usually identified as a movement in Christianity that thinks that the baptism of the Spirit is a second experience. Usually after conversion, marked by speaking in tongues. 1 Corinthians 12, 12 to 13, the Apostle Paul says... Just as there is one body and the members, that we all have members in one body, through many, we are one body, so it is with Christ, for we are 
one in spirit, and we are baptized into one body. Do you catch the past tense? It's not a future blessing. It doesn't come and go. It happens at the point of conversion. When you see in Acts that there was this delay, this waiting for the spirit, that is not the normalcy. What is the normalcy is profession of faith in Christ, the spirit indwelling, remaining, and the empowerment that comes is through the spirit that remains in you. The spirit unites us into Jesus Christ, into his body, into the church. In other words, it's conversion. It's becoming a Christian. And this is what it means to be a Christian, to be moved upon by the Holy Spirit in such a way that we are brought to faith and united in Christ. I want to be so clear on this point. I hope I am. The Holy Spirit is a clear sign of the life of a true believer. And the Holy Spirit was the sign that identified Jesus Christ. Point three. One word defines the sign. If you were to take a test, what is the one word, look in your Bibles, that denoted who was the coming one? The Spirit descended and remained. The key word is remain. The Spirit descended like a dove and he remained upon him. 32 verse, the second half of it. He upon whom you see the Spirit Descending and remaining, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit, verse 33. And John says, I myself did not know him, verse 33 again. But he who you sent me to baptize with water, namely God, said to me, he upon who you see the Spirit descend and remain. This is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. So John the Baptist says, my testimony about Jesus did not come from what I know about him naturally. It comes from God. And God told me what to say about Jesus. Not only does the Spirit come and remain on the Son, but the Spirit after the ascension comes and remains on all true believers. Not most. We need to get this truth locked in our hearts and into our minds. Not only does the Spirit abide in the life of a believer, but 1 John 2, 27 as Jeremy wisely pointed out to me this week, we are to abide in him. There is our current reality, but there's also an exhortation that we are to abide. We are to remain. The reason we are to be marked, and this I put in bold and I put three stars, so it must be important. Okay, here it is. The reason that we are to be different and live out this difference as the light as believers is that the one who dwells in us, namely God, the Spirit, is markedly different than our old, carnal, sinful selves. So we are not to look like our old selves. The Lamb of God, the Son of God, uh, the Son of God has come to take away the sin of the world. And the Spirit descended and remained on the Son. Fourth point, on the Son. I did not recognize him, but he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, He upon you, the Spirit descending... And remaining, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. Verse 34, last verse for this sermon is this. I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. Matthew 16, 16. When Peter was asked the identity, remember what he said? 
You are the Christ, the son of the living God. Church of the Canyons, the reason that we exist is because of Christ. Period, full stop. If Christ isn't the lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world, this is a country club. This is a fellowship. This is a fun group of people to spend time with and do cleanup projects with yesterday and to perhaps serve one another, perhaps care for one another, perhaps love one another. But at the best, all we're doing is caring for the present need. Without Christ, it means nothing. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus is the reason we exist. For we proclaim Christ. We proclaim Christ crucified. We proclaim Christ is indeed the Son of God. Worship team, I'm going to have you come forward because we're going to get ready to participate in communion. The baptism of the Spirit happens once. When repentance for sin is genuinely proclaimed This baptism unifies believers with all believers in Christ, the global church, the big C. The baptism in water is a public proclamation, a one-time event in the life of a believer, proclaiming the faith already established in Jesus. The act of baptism in water is a unification moment with the believer and the local church family. What do I mean by that? Two baptisms. One is a baptism by water. One is a baptism by spirit. So if somebody asks you post this sermon, are there two different baptisms? How do you answer? The answer is yes. One happens concurrent to your faith, which is, survey says, spirit. Thank you. The other one happens post-conversion, one-time event, public proclamation of what's already accomplished in you water baptism. In that water baptism, we are unified through fellowship with one another into the local church, and we stand beside our fellow brothers and sisters in their public proclamation, saying that we will come alongside them to help them, to admonish them, to correct them, to instruct them, to love them. But they're already part of the family. It's a family. They don't, you don't kick a family member out because they've had a bad day. And the family is who has the meal together. This is a family table. And so the reason I asked Adam weeks ago, I said, could we think about inverting our communion service to happen post the sermon instead of pre the sermon is I wanted to set the table in a way that we know as a family what it means to come to the table. How does it connect to things such as baptism, public proclamation? But baptism happens how often? Once. How often are you indwelt by the Spirit? Once. How often do we do communion? As often as we do this, do this in remembrance of me. It's a perpetual event that happens until Christ comes. And in doing so, we are remembering the Lamb of God who came to take away the sin of the world, whose body was broken, whose blood was shed, so that we can proclaim, we can remember, and we can proclaim.
So let's sing, and I'll come back and lead us in a quick devotional.